Welcome to Transform Now, the podcast brought to you by robotic process automation pioneer, SSNC Blue Prism. Digital transformation has the potential to reshape the way companies service their customers, engage their employees, and manage their operations. Whether you're looking to develop strategies, tactics, or best practices to positively impact the future of work, or you're curious to see how other companies have successfully navigated their digital transformation programs, then this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform now. Hello, everyone. I'm Brad Hairston with SSC Blue Prism. Welcome to the Transform Now podcast. Today, I'm excited to have as my guest, Alex Ratner, co-founder and CEO at Snorkel AI, a data-centric technology startup based in Redwood City, California. Alex and I will be discussing how his company is helping organizations accelerate their AI development by 10 to 100x. Welcome, Alex. Why don't you introduce yourself before we dive in? Awesome. Well, Brad, thank you so much for having me, and, and I'm, I'm super excited to chat today. So you covered you covered the most important parts. As mentioned, currently one of the co-founders, CEO of Snorkel AI, we spun out of the Stanford AI lab. We ran the Snorkel Research Project from about 2015 to 2019 or so when we spun out. And then I'm also an affiliate assistant professor at uh, Computer Science University of Washington. So still still have an academic hat and I'll try to talk in, in our discussion today, both about the high level ideas that we've been working on for the last eight years, you know, between Stanford, UW, and now the, the, the company Snorkel, as well as specifically how we're helping customers and what our platform is. And I will get too deep into it, but the one-liner is it's all about how data development, data labeling, data curation is even more central than ever to how AI actually gets built and adapted for you know your specific, especially enterprise applications today. Looking forward to talking about all of this and more. Fantastic. Well, your company, Alex, is definitely very interesting. The more I read about it, the more questions formed in my head and I have been looking forward to talking to you now for several weeks. So really glad to have you on. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us a bit more about Snorkel AI? I mean, what exactly does your platform do? What is your value proposition in the market? Well, let me, let me as promised, kind of start at the high level so that, that there's a takeaway both for folks, you know, with kind of higher level ideas around AI and data science and, and automation. And then specifically what we do in our value prop there, which will be the natural lead in okay. a high level, what we've focused on over the last eight years, and it's going to sound boring at first for eight years of a large team's effort, but I'll promise to follow on is really just around the centrality of, of data in AI development. And for those of you who are familiar, you know, most AI these days is machine learning, which means, you know, AI that learns from data. So you, you might say, well, of course, it's about data. It's always been about mm -hmm. data. We mean this from the workflow perspective. In other words, traditionally data centric, sorry, data science has been taught as what we call model centric. So it's all about building the models, the algorithms, the, you know, tweaking and tuning the parameters and the data is something you get from someone else, a, a line of business team, some subject matter experts, a, a data set you download. And we set out to study, well, what happens if machine learning, this is back in 2015, mind you, what if, what if a lot of the ML stack gets automated? becomes more standardized and what happened then? Where would the next bottlenecks be? And, and what we mm -hmm. saw happening and thought would happen is that ML gets automated. It also becomes more data hungry. That's kind of the natural trade-off. You get more right. automation, no free energy. It requires more data to learn from to do all that stuff now automatically. So we figured that data would become the kind of key ingredient, the limiting reagent, the, the key bottleneck. 
And the key thing with machine learning, and we can get into this later, but especially with, well, really with any kind of machine learning, the, the quality of the data and how it's labeled and curated is, is one of the most important things. It's not just having data like in a data lake. It's having data that is curated and labeled for the machine learning problem you're trying to solve. And doing that can be incredibly slow, right? So for example, we work with five of the top 10 U.S. banks as customers right now. One of the early engagements we had with one of our first customers, the top, top U.S. bank, they spent six months building their first model. It was over some legal documents. So using AI to parse and triage all this unstructured data, unstructured text. And they had taken about a day to build the model. This is about two or three years ago, about 50 lines of code from the open source. They had be a single line of code. Um, mm -hmm. And all they, they tried other variants, all the fancy model tweaks that made barely a tenth of a point of difference. But the data labeling, going back and forth, the line of business partner team, labeling and relabeling thousands of contracts to teach this model, that was what took them all the time, right? All the six months. And then mm -hmm. they got to the end of the project and the kicker was, line of business team came back and said, okay, great. You are kind of pulling these eight things out. We actually need these different 30 things. So they would have had to start from scratch. So mm -hmm. a lot of AI these days, you know, that hypothesis we started with really has come to the forefront where you're often not blocked on the models. The models are more powerful, more automated than ever. We can talk about foundation models or large language models today and how they sit into that puzzle piece. They only kind of accelerate this trend. The data is the key differentiator and the bottleneck that enterprises get stuck on trying to build and adapt these models for their settings. So back to what we build, a lot of what we focus on is making the labeling and curation and development of this data more automated, more programmatic. The goal is not to make it push button automagic because that doesn't exist. Um, if you can automagically auto label all your data, then you don't need to be labeling data to train a model. It's mm -hmm. really, really that simple. Our goal is rather to make it look more like software development. So mm -hmm. we can go into more detail, but you know, teach them machine learning model by writing some code or pointing out some heuristics or teaching the model in these higher level ways. And with this, you can go from six months to literally under 24 hours just by putting the human in the loop in a better way. Um, and yeah. what we call this more broadly is, and I'll wrap up here, is data-centric development. So the idea is rather than the data is something you get in, you take in and you iterate on the model, here it's flipped. This is the future we think of AI in general. We try mm -hmm. to support part of it in our own way. The model is fairly standardized. It's a one-liner from some open source repo or an API call or something. The mm -hmm. data, labeling, relabeling, fixing, curating, that's what you spend your time on. So mm -hmm. I guess if you're you know, not as deep in the weeds as a data scientist, maybe the higher level takeaway, and we talk about with our partners and customers about this all the time, is you know, we think every AI developer is going to have to become a data developer. Mm -hmm. And structurally in organizations, those are going to have to become one and the same function because that's where all the AI development really is done and is going to be done these days. That's mm. a high level. I've had several AI experts on the podcasts over the last few years, and, and it seems like all of them generally agree that the problem with AI is it's not being deployed at scale. Everyone's got a pilot or a POC going, but they're not rolling it out at scale. And you've talked here a lot about data being the major bottleneck and the labeling of data. So that's kind of like a light bulb going off for me because this has been a recurring theme with all these people I've talked to. Maybe if you could just talk a little bit more about how you and your team that were part of the Stanford AI lab and then at Snorkel AI, how did, how did you guys hone in on this being such a critical problem? 
A great question. So I'll, I'll kind of tackle the first part is how do we stumble onto this? And then second, how it ties into our view on why is there this gap? These stats you hear about eight out of 10 models don't make it to production. Mm-hmm et cetera, which we very much agree with from our purview. We stumbled onto this. We got hit in the face with it a number of times before we finally looked around. I mean, we had lots of open source code. We would always put out software artifacts. We were a lab that was, you know, we'd done um, myself and my co-founder, Chris Ray, who's a professor at Stanford, was was my advisor back there. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of theory, a lot of deep systems, algorithm work, but we always put out artifacts with users and we had all these user sessions and a lot of stuff in open source there. And it was really our users that led us there. We were pitching, you know, we were hawking our latest wares. So we've got this new fancy machine learning model, our algorithm, and kept getting mm-hmm. responses, especially in these complex areas that we were working with clinicians and, you know, scientists. And they said, look, I, that, that sounds nice and all, but all of this requires tons of labeled data and I don't have that. And right. can you solve that problem? Well, you'll take care of that. What about this new fancy <laughs> item? Okay, but we don't really care. But what about the data? And so after we got hit in the face of that enough times, we finally started paying attention a little bit. I remember when we started, it was, I actually got career advice. Funnily enough, I was remembering this, you not all maliciously, just someone was saying, hey, working on data or data labeling, like that's like a janitorial task. You're probably gonna have a hard time publishing as an academic and machine learning it might not be the best route to go, uh-huh. right? Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> and we said, look, we want to build real stuff. And this seems like where the pain point is. And if the machine learning part of the equation get solved more with AutoML and these big beefier. At the time, this was the start of the deep learning wave. So we started seeing, now they'd be tiny by comparison to the current models that everyone is excited about in AI. But back then, these massively more complex models, black box, super data hungry, but really automated, right? Everyone was walking them. It was super, much, much more simple to use. So we said, look, if this trend continues, then not only is the data problem still a problem, but it's going to get a hundred times worse. So let's focus on that. This is also what we see in the enterprise world today. There are a whole bunch of reasons, all the way from data collection and integration, all the way to the last mile of model risk management and explainability and governance that block. And actually, I should note the first mile problem of just getting good alignment of what are the actual business value problems to solve and how are the line of business teams connected to the data science teams. There are a ton of reasons why, you know, folks feel like that the, they don't get value out of their AI investments. But certainly one of the biggest ones we see is this data blocker. And maybe I'll put it in, in the terms of um, what it often feels like on the ground. So, so first, no matter how good AI gets, it just doesn't work out of the box on the complex and high value enterprise problems. Maybe some loving fruit, but that's not the reality of, of what happens. And I'll draw an analogy to humans. This is always, usually when an AI person tries to compare AI to humans, it's a note that it's about to go off the rails into, mm-hmm. into hype town or something <laughs> nonsensical. I think there's a fairly modest analogy. If you onboard a new employee, mm-hmm. even if they're an expert, they're an expert lawyer, an expert doctor, you'd probably expect you need to do some training of them on your data, your constraints, your objectives, your standards, your customer or patient population, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're onboarding an employee who's just learned to read by reading like Wikipedia and Stack Overflow and stuff on the internet right? Mm. Not at all train your subspecialty. Yeah. Intuitively information, theoretically, AI is no different. You got to adapt it. And the way that the adaptation is done is via this labeled training data. So when folks see these eye-popping demos and then they want to bring it into their, you know, their bank, their insurance company, their government agency, the last mile of this adaptation is all about labeling data, developing data sets to teach the model. And that's where Mm -hmm. stuff gets difficult. Imagine and I'll end on this, but imagine you're in a, a data science team and to get AI to work, 
you've got to ask some line of business expert to spend 2,000 hours labeling data before you can even prove to them whether your machine learning model helps them in some way, right? Mm. So it's the cost of this, but it's also, especially for these settings where you can't just ship it out to outsourced annotators, you need internal experts on private data to do the labeling. Mm. It's this social friction of how do you get over that, you know, lip of, of uh, when it's, it's such a high cost of entry, right? And so a lot of AI mm -hmm. projects that could have immense value just don't get started. It, or you bring in yeah. these kind of out, out of the box demos that don't work because they were never adapted. You didn't have the data. So that's one of the big blockers that obviously we focus on and we see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just so enamored with the space you're in for numerous reasons among them, which you mentioned the fact that the data problem itself is only going to get worse. I mean, exponentially worse. It's getting worse every second. It's proliferating. And so I just love the fact that you're bringing the power of automation and AI forward to tackle that and get a handle on it because it's not going to get better. It's just going to get more overwhelming. And one quick thing to be aware of, I mean, people also overlook this, like, it's not just about collecting data for some tasks, yeah. but most, especially the high value predictive AI tasks, you know, we were chatting about this for a second before the call about focusing on predictive AI. And that's where a lot of the enterprise value is. Every single different data set and task that you have, you've got to relabel the data. So let's say you have a data set of, I don't know, call transcripts, mm -hmm. right? It's not just enough to curate or label that once. It's every mm -hmm. single time you have a new problem or a new spec or any kind of change. So it's not only the data multiplying, it's the more things you want to be able to do with AI, the more, you know, the more, the more development curation labeling you have to do. Well, you clearly struck a nerve, a good nerve that is with the market and with companies that are, are living on data and need an easier way to label it and, and feed their AI tools and their many, many, many algorithms. I looked on your website. I saw the impressive list of companies that helped fund your company. And then also your, your customers, companies like BNY Mellon, Schlumberger, Chubb. How did you secure the trust of companies like that? having only been in existence as a company since 2019? A, a very fair question. I, I remember the, uh, uh, one of our, our current customers, one of their, uh, it was a large uh, top five U.S. bank, their, one of their four global CIOs came by the, the lab at Stanford and, you know, was in a room where there were like a bunch of discarded pizza boxes outside and, you know, was intrigued by the presentation. We hadn't even incorporated yet. And one of the members of our team was begging, could you please get a non.edu address so we can even just talk to you? So. We started engaging with some of these big folks really early on. I should also note, very importantly, you know, we're, we're three years in, we've delivered some significant value for, for many of these, these top orgs. We still view our journey with all of them as very early days, and, and we have a ton to do ahead to continue to earn that trust and that privilege of working with them. So very much still at the start of the journey. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, I think one thing was that we're, we're young as a company, but we've been around for about eight years in terms of, you know, pushing on this space. And so, you know, we, we started with, and I think this is good advice for any very technical company. I mean, a lot of companies go to market in, and they go kind of bottom up, right? And so they, they start with, with more down market accounts and then they work their way up. With certain, especially when you have an early technology and a complex technology and an early market, if you think about AI in the enterprise, it's still early days, which I think a lot of people mm -hmm. underestimate. I know, Brad, you and, and team see this uh, data, you know, it's, just, it, it's early. There's so much potential. Sure. 
even just how to not only how to operationalize, but how to purchase AI tools is nascent. So in some of these cases, it, it actually can be beneficial to start with more with larger customers. It's more risk because as a tiny startup, you don't want to mess up your shop with, you know, one of the world's largest banks, for example. Yeah. But you you often get more sophisticated early adopter users who are very excited to, to work with new things. And then it's just on you to make it valuable for them. And so mm -hmm. I think there's we've always been fans of this. This, I guess one, one phrasing is you know, the common advice is do unscalable things or don't, don't aim for scalability too fast. But we work very closely with our early customers as design partners. We, we helped build our product around them. We still do that for new products, our new feature rollouts. This ends up being a win-win. They get rougher edges and maybe a smaller, scrappier team, but they get more influence. Mm -hmm. and, and so you can do that. And I think as an early company, that's a great way to kind of get started. And then you earn the trust, you build scalability, then, then you build scalability from there. But. Anyway, I guess I'm, I'm just musing on one way that I think it's good for technical companies to get started in this space. That's a really good answer, Alex. I appreciate the humility in your answer. That's really great. Let's move on. I want to talk about foundation models and how your platform supports them. So can you give us kind of an overview of what those are? Yeah. So at a high level, I, I can, we can circle back if we want to, but you know, foundation models, that's one term for what some folks call large language models. These are the, the chat GPTs or, or Dolly or stable diffusion. These, these generative models that, that have taken at least certain areas of Twitter by storm. And, and now even, you know, the front page of search engines, although I've, I've heard most recently Bing is going kind of heard that Bing chat GPT is going a little crazy very publicly and, and hallucinating a lot of wrong answers, but, but still lots of incredible excitement there. Real progress, even, even amidst the hype, like just staggering, even for, you know, jaded AI researchers like myself, it's a really exciting time to be an AI. So what are these models actually? I won't go through the whole, the whole uh, spiel, but at a high level, these models learn or they self-supervise, they learn on you know, large, large, large corpuses of data, you know, the standard idea, and this is actually classical, it goes back decades. You know, you look at a couple of words on some internet text and you try to predict the next word and you don't need human labeling for this. You just go look at text and you, it just teaches itself by trying to look at a window of words and predict, predict the next window of words. So if this has been around for decades, it's what underlies, before it was even called machine learning, when this was just called counting or statistics, mm -hmm. this underlied, uh, you know, was, it underlies your autocomplete on your phone, you know, mm -hmm. guessing what's next. But now what we found as a community is that if you get the, the model architecture right, people are using these new architectures called transformers and you scale this up massively. So you have these massive multi-hundred billion parameter models on web scale corpuses with training runs that cost, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Just having this model teach itself on this basic task, it can do these incredible emergent properties. You can have it write, co have coherent dialogue or generate images. It's not just mm -hmm. text. And so it's really capturing people's imaginations, but it's, it's also just a, a truly staggering uh, inflection point that, that you get this, these emergent properties just from, from scaling up. So back to foundation models, well, no, why do we call it that? One, they're not just text anymore. They're very multimodal. And two, we like to term foundation models because they're foundation. We use them as foundations to build on, right? You still need to do that adaptation and that development to get even the biggest gigantic chat GPT model as we're seeing play out in real time. It's still not hundred percent accurate. It's still not, you know, adapted to your enterprise settings or your production accuracy bar doing all that adaptation. That's like building the house on top of the foundations, better foundations mm -hmm. mean you can Yes, I'm testing the metaphor here, but you build the house faster, but you still got to build the particular house or building or structure. 
dependent on your needs and situation. So building off that, pun not intended, I'm sorry. What do we do inside H models? I'll give the high level answer. First of all, our platform snorkel flow gives you the fastest way to label and, and develop and adapt training data to teach and adapt these foundation models for your specific setting. Mm-hmm. So again, you bring one of these things out of the box and you want to go from, you know, having fun chats on the internet to predicting something about a loan decision or a document or a customer interaction or a satellite image with high accuracy. You need to teach it with a lot of labeled data. Snorkelflow can do that fine tuning or adaptation. And also we now use foundation models in the platform to speed up this data development. So a lot of folks, most folks actually are not deploying these big foundation models to production. They want to train a smaller model just to do, and think about these foundation models as generalists. They're just, you know, gigantic generalists. Folks want to ship a specialist model that does really well on a specific high value enterprise task. What we are able to do in Snorkelflow is use foundation models to accelerate and automate data labeling to train these models. Okay. So it's kind of both ends uh, we, we play. Interesting. Well, one example of a foundation model, which you mentioned is chat GPT, which is really generated incredible buzz since it was released. And the underlying technology for ChatGPT is generative AI, which you also mentioned. Can you, can you differentiate generative AI from predictive AI? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great distinction. So I'll note some of the stuff that I was, you know, ranting about, and I'll I'll continue to rant about to talk my book, you know, academic and commercial of course, about data being at the center of how you build these applies to both generative and predictive. So I'll note that okay. first, but it's a, it's yep. a really important practical distinction. So a simple example, a generative model is, is something that generates, you know, a whole page of text or mm-hmm. an image. A predictive or formally the term is often is, is discriminative, a predictable, we'll just say predictive, a predictive model. The job is to take in an image or a page of text and say, classify it or apply a tag or extract some information from it. So again, simple example, imagine generating a picture versus labeling whether that picture has offensive content in it. Right. Now, the other thing, I'll note a couple of things. First of all, the same models that do this generative AI can be easily adapted to do predictive AI as well. Now, generally to do predictive AI at high accuracy, they need more what's called fine tuning or labeled data depending on the task. But that's why, again, the, the term foundation models we like is that whether you're using it for generative AI or predictive AI, these are foundations you can build on top of. Uh, so a lot of predictive AI models are now kind of built on top of the foundation models. The foundation model is the base, and then it gets adapted or what's called fine-tuned for the specific predictive problem. The other thing I'll mention just quickly is that the generative models, they make just mind-blowing demos, and yeah. more than demos, of course, too. Intuitively, a lot of people think, okay, generative is harder than predictive. And formally, that's actually correct in some sense. But what I think a lot of people underestimate is that the, is the setting, the, the, the kind of the, the bar for, produ- for production success. The generative is kind of, you think, okay, generating the whole image has to be harder than just labeling whether the image has like mm-hmm. a gun in it or a plane in it or is offensive. Right. Most generative use cases today, and we're still figuring this out, we'll see what the, where the value accrues and what the durable, you know, both product and business models actually are in generative, mm-hmm. but most of them seem to be around human in the loop. So I'm generating some marketing copy that I'm going to edit. I'm generating an image that I'm going to then pick my favorite sample and edit. So there's not even a well-defined way of measuring accuracy. And mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be that accurate because it's just a tool to kind of help. That, that, that seems to be a lot of where the, 
the value is settling. Whereas most predictive AI, and Brad, would love to hear your experience, obviously from the Blue Prism side here too, but like most predictive AI, that thing needs to work at 99% accuracy in a very, very robust and specific way. Mm -hmm. So even though predictive AI seems like a simpler task, mm -hmm. getting it to the level where you can actually ship it in the enterprise yep. is often far more difficult. So a lot of what we're helping to do with Snorkel Flow with our platform is take these generative AI models, use them as foundations, but adapt them, train them with labeled data to do a predictive task at super high mm -hmm. accuracy. And do you think generative AI will help companies accelerate their adoption of AI in general? And do you also think it will exceed the use of predictive AI in the near future? Super interesting. Um, so as I mentioned, these generative AI models often are used to build predictive models. But let's put that off, off the side. Okay. So I think, yep. you know, the, the, when we just talk about these generative AI models, like, you know, a GPT, for example, mm -hmm. right? These models will help accelerate AI development, both generative and predictive. Okay. Because they serve as the basis for building both. Now, I do think there's going to be a bit of a, you know, we're going to have our, you know, period of disillusionment coming mm -hmm. up next couple of months, I think. We all got to get it in, you know, into our search pages, into our enterprises. And then there's going to be a, a realization that, okay, there's actually a lot of work to get this thing to work reliably, let alone to ship it through, you know, a model risk management committee, et cetera. Uh, right. So I think we're going to, we're going to hit that, but I do think it's going to be durable and really be a step change in accelerating folks towards, towards AI deployment. Yeah. On generative okay. versus predictive, this is not my expertise area, but I, I, from what I see, predictive is where most of the enterprise value is. Right. Generative, again, I, I still think we're figuring out, like a lot of the use cases seem to be, mm -hmm. you know, human the loop assist, you know, settings where... Anyway, I think I think we're still working on how will that actually look for enterprises. I think there's mm -hmm. tremendous potential, but yeah. it's going to take a while even to work out like where does that fit. Whereas predictive AI, we we know where it fits. Yeah, we more than ever have it connected to real line of business value. Yeah, and now these foundation models will help accelerate that. Yeah, I would say in the RPA world where we live, it's it's similar. I think we're I mean we're all very intrigued with where generative AI can play a role and where it fits in. We do need a high degree of accuracy on the predictive side. We're going to need it on the generative side as well. And we also need to figure out how we can make it as auditable as possible. And what I mean by that is we've, we've got to be able to document exactly how an outcome was produced, you know, that a bot or a digital worker is acting upon one that, you know, comes from an AI algorithm, for example, that's a pretty essential foundational component of automation and, and RPA. And that's something that many people on my side of the fence are kind of racking their brains right now, trying to figure out how that's going to work. So yeah, but it's, it's very, everyone's very excited. No doubt. I think the intersection of our world and generative AI is probably coming sooner than later, I would expect. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, as you said, it's, I mean, what you can't measure, you can't improve. I forget where that quote yeah. comes from. But I mean, generative AI can be measured, it can be improved, but it's difficult to even measure, you know, what's, what's yeah. success, right? Predictive yeah. AI, you can measure accuracy and, and that, that is helpful. So I think in the near term, we'll see predictive AI in the next couple of years still continue to dominate the kind of real uh, enterprise value. But, mm -hmm. you know, generative, I, th I think a lot of these like human acceleration, right? Like, Again, mm -hmm. like if you auto label a document 
that can actually that can help power an RPA process, mm-hmm. right? That 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 has yeah. a clear quantified value. If you generate a draft of a document, how does you know, again like what you'd be measuring is does that accelerate the work of the lawyer, for example, right? Does mm-hmm. that help them? It's not going to replace anytime soon, but can it yeah. accelerate them their their drafting time? And what does that workflow even look like? What does that kind of new palette look like? People are getting really creative there. Right. And I think it's going to have massive value. If you can show that generating the starter text of a contract cuts off 50% of the time of drafting the final version, like that is yeah. a ton of value. But I think we're right. just still figuring it out. Like what, what does the tool set look like? What does the UI look like? What is the, you know, how do we measure success? So I'm, I'm, I'm bullish there. I don't know which, yeah. I think they'll both be valuable. They're very different, you know, different places. Yeah, absolutely. So Alex, two weeks ago, when I was thinking about this podcast and just starting to plan out some questions and stuff for you, I went out on the web, looked at some articles, and one of them talked about the AI race with China. And the head of Pentagon's AI area basically said, if we're going to beat China, we have to find a way to label data at scale. Because if we don't label at scale, we're not going to win. <laughs> yep. So I read that and I thought, man, that is like 100% relevant to this conversation I have coming up with, with Alex. So I wanted to ask you, I don't know if, if the Pentagon AI czar is a client, but it sounds like he's a great potential client if you, if you aren't already working with him. I'm, I'm a big fan of that quote and what they're doing at the CDAO and at the, the Jake before that. A lot of the funding that, that motivated, and not just funding, but, but guidance that motivated the project was all DARPA, ONR, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of federal funding. And so right. I think that you know, the forward, some, some of the really forward-looking folks inside the government that, that put research dollars to work have known that data labeling was going to be a, a problem you know, for a long time. We owe a lot yep. of our motivation to that. And so... Yeah, I think it's a really critical thing. I mean, you, you look right now and it remains one of the biggest blockers and, you know, you just have these enormous volumes of data that you can imagine in federal settings that you're, yeah. you're labeling. A lot of it is not, there's just too much for a SME and the government to, to handle. And so how can you, and not just handle labeling it manually, but even labeling enough data to train a model to do it for you. So mm-hmm. we're falling behind there. Yeah. And, you know, I think the thing that, that a lot of folks emphasize on the federal side that I, I couldn't agree more with. I mean, you know, if you look at certain other countries, we're probably not going to beat them when it comes to throwing people at the problem, right? Yep. You know, so we have to be more creative. We have to be, if we want to keep pace, not just pull ahead, keep pace. We have to be creative about how we're building our data advantage. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a big motivation for us at Snorkel because our whole, you know, our whole product and tech and mission is, you know, be radically more efficient about data labeling and data development. Well, my final question for you is the hardest one, and that is, how did you come up with the name Snorkel AI? Where does that come from? Oh, I'll give you the actual story. I don't know whether you were bargaining for a longer answer or not, but the first part was we had a prior project in the lab at Stanford that my my co-founder and my former advisor, Chris Ray, started called Deep Dive. And Okay. Deep Dive was also around, you know, a machine learning platform. It actually ended up spinning out and the company got bought by Apple and it became part of the Siri AI team. But back in those days, it was a massively powerful platform. It was used on a ton of really cool use cases. The DARPA Memex project, fighting, fighting human trafficking, a bunch of stuff in the medical world. It was also a huge and hulking platform to get to work and, and to work with. And so one of the threads that ended up becoming Snorkel was 
can we make a lighter weight way to use this? That then mm. joined with the threat of, hey, people are getting stuck on the data and can we do more efficient data labeling? But that was one of those threads. And so we said, okay, what's a lighter weight version of a deep dive? And <laughs> we were thinking snorkel, scuba. I remember I had a cold at the time. And yeah. so I was like, um, you know, in an incredibly nasal voice, a snorkel. And, you know, my advisor at the time, Chris, was just laughing his ass off and was like, okay, well, I want you to be standing on a stage someday saying that word and sounding as ridiculous <laughs> now. So I'm, I'm vetoing anything other than snorkel. And I'm like, the average shelf life of an academic project is like two days. So yeah. fine. And that is kind of how the name got locked. And then an early investor at Google Ventures, we were going to change the name to something else. And he said, no, no, no. Funny names like Google are, are the way to go. So stick with it. I'm like, okay, great. Stick with it. So that's the full history of the name. That is pure genius and a great story. So thank you for sharing that. Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been a really fun conversation. And, you know, we are in a new era of AI, it, it seems, and it's accelerating at a breakneck speed. And your company is really, I think, squarely in the middle of it. So congratulations on all of your accomplishments today. I wish you and Snorkel AI the very best. Thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me in for the, the awesome conversation. Looking forward to talking again soon. Thanks for tuning in to Transform Now. For more insightful discussions on digital transformation and more, check out our podcast channel where you'll find all of our previous episodes. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. For more information about digital transformation and the future of work, Check out blueprism.com to learn how SSNC Blueprism's digital workforce is enabling enterprise transformation now.